Now, if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. We want to consider tonight plotting and providence in Persia. Plotting and providence in Persia. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days... As Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And just thus far, uh, chapter 2, 19 through 23. Uh, you know, when we read the book of Esther, as we have been discovering, sometimes it appears that there are e events or things that happen in the book of Esther that stand alone or appear at least to be incidents that stand alone by themselves. And certainly you read this account in verses 19 through 23 and it appears to be just that. Here's an incident that happened. You read it on this level, the surface level, and you see, well, that's what took place uh, as it's recorded for us in Scripture. But we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is the author of the book of Esther. And this is not just simply a historical account that's given us of an ancient kingdom and of an ancient world and of what went on in that ancient world from that perspective. Rather, we are to see the events of the book of Esther from the perspective of God. Just like the ordinary events of your life and my life, we don't just see them as happening by chance, of course, or by fate. Uh, we don't just see them as, well, that's what happened to me today, or that's what's happened in my life, and so be it. No, we see all events as orchestrated by God and under the fatherly provision and care of God Himself. In fact, that is how every Christian must see the Christian life and life in general and life in the world, that all things are under the sovereign providential care and rule of God. Just as God rules creation, God's creation sustains creation, the word of our Lord Jesus Christ maintains the universe by the word of His power, just as that word sustains and maintains everything and all things, so too when we, when we come to the book of Esther, that is how we need to see the events that sometimes appear just to be thrown in as an historical account. So when we look at this, we, we might say that here is one of those strange accounts, strange incidents that seems to stand alone. Yet when you think about it, you will discover that this is actually not at all a standalone event. 
You can read verses 19 through 23 just like that. And you can learn something from the verses as you see them and as you read them. Here's an interesting side note, if you like, in the text, just after Esther has been selected as the queen. Here's a plot against King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, a plot that is discovered by Mordecai, whom we have discovered now in chapter 2 is one of the characters uh, along with Esther in this book of Esther. And we have already been prepared by the writer as to who Mordecai is. We discover that he is Mordecai the Jew, back in verse 5, Mordecai. We discover that he's related in verse 7 to Esther, that they are cousins and he is much older than she is and he has been taking care of her. In fact, in this text we are reminded again that Esther obeyed Mordecai in everything. So here, here she is as the queen of Persia, in these verses, and she still is under the care of Mordecai in one sense. She always listened to him and obeyed him. But what happens in these verses, 19 through 23, is not a standalone event. It's not just there for our historical knowledge or understanding, because the follow-up to this actual event occurs in chapter 6 of the book of Esther. When for some reason or other, King Ahasuerus was unable to sleep. And of course we know why that is, because God is controlling events. And he calls for the books, the very book that records this incident. And he reads what Mordecai did on his behalf. And then follows certain repercussions. Mordecai is honored. Uh, and you remember that he's honored and has to be led through the streets of, of Susa by Haman, the great enemy. These are the events that God is bringing together. The writer to the book of Esther is situating these events in particular places to get our attention to come out and say, I wonder why that is there. I wonder why God has put this, this seemingly obscure plot against a Persian king here by two eunuchs, a plot that was foiled by the knowledge of Mordecai and then Esther giving it to King Ahasuerus. So this is not an unconnected event. This is not a standalone event. And when you look back over your own life, the events that you see in your own life, you might consider some of them as, well, that was a standalone event, but no. Every event, every single occurrence, every single second of your life is in the hands of God, orchestrating all things according to His purpose. You are free, as we know within that framework of God's control and God's power. God is not manipulating you like a puppet. No, you are free, because God has determined all things, all events, all contingent causes, all secondary events, all of them working together to accomplish ultimately His purpose and His cause. And I can't think of anything better for a Christian to occupy their minds and their hearts with the glory of God over all things, even over my insignificant little life and your great lives. And that's God, isn't it? That's what God, our God, does. He is concerned for your life. Though you may think it is insignificant and of no account, that's not God's perspective at all. In fact, when you look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, you discover that Jesus Himself is interested in even the little children. Let the little children come to Me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Do not forbid them, He says to His disciples.
And you see the great, the great uh, panorama that Jesus brings to human life and the interaction with sinners from all walks of life. Sinful women, sinful men, children, and so on. The diseased, the sick, and all these pictures, these incidents in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. His compassion, His care, His interaction with all of them. Why? Simply because Jesus is who He is. And because God sent Him. And in the right time and at the right place, when that time was right, God sent forth His Son to accomplish His purpose. So this is what we need to understand. Now in these verses, here's a dangerous plot, right? That is discovered or uncovered. You look at verse 22 by Mordecai. It came to the knowledge of Mordecai. That here are these two uh, eunuchs of the king. And by the way, there are eunuchs everywhere in the book of Esther. The king's eunuchs. They play a significant role. We've already been introduced to Haggai and Shaashgaz. One in charge of the first harem and the other in charge of the second harem. And there are many other eunuchs. And here are two eunuchs who are in charge of the threshold, the king's threshold. They're even named in the text. And of course, this dangerous plot is discovered by Mordecai, who makes it known to Esther, who makes it known to Ahasuerus, and there's an investigation, and it's found to be so, and it's found to be true, and so on. But what stands out in the passage, right, is that there is a lack of reward. Mordecai has done a great thing. He saved the life of the king. And all that you read about at the end of verse 23 is that a record was made in the book of the Chronicles of the King in the presence of Ahasuerus. And that's all that we read in the account. So Mordecai's service is simply recorded in verse 23 in the record books before Ahasuerus. And then Mordecai is forgotten. Mordecai is forgotten. And we are immediately introduced in chapter 3 to Haman the Agagite the enemy of the people of God. And so you can see that the writer is just developing these themes and introducing us to new characters as he goes along. Now, I want you to look with me, first of all, in verse 19, because verse 19 begins with a strange line, a difficult line. It says, When the virgins were gathered together the second time. What do we understand by the second time? What is that? I mean, it seems a strange statement, right? Since the whole purpose of bringing these young women together in chapter 2, as we've already seen, was to choose a queen, which has already happened in the text in verse 17. So when verse 19 takes place, when the virgins are gathered together the second time, Esther has already been appointed queen. In fact, if you look at verse 22, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. So you notice the, the change of names to her title now. She is the queen. So what does this mean the second time when these virgins, these young women, are gathered together the second time? Well, there have been a number of suggestions. Here's the first one. Some, some suggest that this is some sort of follow-up celebration parade to the celebrations that have already taken place. So, for example, if you look at verse 18... Here's the celebration of Esther as queen. The king gave a great feast for all officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Not only that, but he granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So, great feast, taxes are remitted, 
and there are gifts that are given with royal generosity. So some suggest this is some sort of follow-up, some gathering together of these young women to, to celebrate this. Some have seen this, that this is perhaps another collection of young women who are going to become concubines and find themselves ultimately in the second harem under Shaashgaz. Some suggest, <coughs> excuse me, oh. <coughs> some suggest that these are late arrivals <coughs> from the initial search. I mean, you have to cover 127 provinces. <coughs> so some suggest, you know, by the time they've arrived, these are late, the events are over, Queen Esther is already chosen, and they have now arrived the second time. Some see these virgins who are, along with Esther, were in the line to go into the king. So these are the remaining virgins who have not gone into the king to spend a night with the king. So Esther has achieved what the purpose was, and now these are the extra virgins who never got a turn, and they are gathered the second time. These are the excess, if you like. Certainly, we don't, I don't think Esther was the last of the young virgins. It's just that she was the one who became queen. Or, as has been suggested, they are being sent home, gathered together, and now they are not needed because Esther has become queen. That's one suggestion. Or it may also be that this is some sort of ongoing rotation among these young women. Because remember and bear in mind that Ahasuerus is not bound by any moral code that you or I might have. He's a Persian. He's a pagan. Right? So to be faithful to Esther is not on his radar at all. She is just the queen, the title. Uh, there are many concubines, as the second harem tells us in the passages. And not only that, but in that second harem, all those young women who passed through have now entered that second harem and spend the rest of their lives there. Not a very pleasant situation. Esther herself says, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 11, she even makes the confession to Mordecai that she has not seen the king in 30 days. That he hasn't called for her in 30 days. I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So for one month, Esther hasn't even seen King Ahasuerus. And I'm uh, not so foolish to think that he never saw another young woman. Of course he did. And so on. So I do think perhaps the best suggestion is that this is some sort of rotation that King Ahasuerus is just continuing and going through. Not necessarily in order, but perhaps Haggai and Shaashgaz, the king's units, might get together and say, well, you go and it's your turn and you go. Or perhaps, which is more likely, King Ahasuerus has them paraded in front of him and he chooses and he picks which girl, which young woman would be with him. And so this is uh, what we find in these verses, and I think that's probably the best way to see the second time. Remember King Solomon, he engaged in similar practices, right? First Kings chapter 11. In fact, he loved, the Bible tells us, many foreign women, many foreign women, so much so that he had 700 wives 
and 300 concubines. It's a thousand young women for himself. By the way, it was those very wives that drew his heart away from the Lord, that turned his heart towards idolatry because of the engagement of immorality. And those two sins, of course, are massive in the Old Testament, just like they seem to find uh, great prominence even in the New Testament, that every sin ultimately comes back to idolatry and comes back to immorality. And we find that in Israel, in the history of Israel. And certainly King Solomon is like that. And certainly all these pagan kings, Gentiles, are exactly like that. They, those women, fed Solomon with idolatry in the midst of their immorality. And they turned his heart from following the Lord like David his father had done. So, when you look at verse 19, there's something happening. This gathering is taking place. Now, that's the first thing. While that is taking place, you notice verse 19, what Mordecai is doing. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And in verse 21, he happened to be in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he finds out about this planned assassination attempt of Big Than and Teresh, who are two of the king's eunuchs. Now, you know, to sit at the king's gate implies something. The fact that Mordecai gets to sit at the king's gate seems to suggest some official position, some royal capacity, whatever that might be. We're never told what it is, but he seems to occupy in the gate, along with other officials, a position that would require certain trust. Now, perhaps he's taking notes or keeping records, you know, a lot of business comes in through the gates. And records are kept and maintained, dealing with complaints. And of course, the king's gate, even in the Bible, is recognized as the place where legal transactions take place, where civil business is conducted and commercial business takes place. And I think that's possibly what Mordecai is involved in. He's, he's some sort of official, along with other Persians. They are officials in the king's business. There is actually archaeological evidence in Susa, and we of course are in Susa, the capital of Persia, of a gate that was built by the father of Xerxes, or the father of Ahasuerus, who remember was Darius. And in fact, it's, we even have dimensions for such a gate. It was 131 feet by 92 feet. It's not just a small little 10-foot gate, like our two back doors there, you know, as if that was the gate that opened up. No, this is a big structure, a large structure. In fact, it really was a building, uh, a building that you went through the building, and it apparently had side rooms. And when you read the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel, for example, chapter 40 through chapter 48, you get a, a lot of information about side rooms, side rooms. So you would enter the gate, and the gate is not just you straight through it, but a sort of building that you entered through and with these side rooms on either side. In fact, the records show that the building was supported by four columns with the side rooms on either side. And on those four columns, apparently, there was an inscription that was discovered and found, which goes like this. It says, Xerxes the king says... By the grace of Ahuramaz Mazda, which is some god, the gate Darius the king made, he who was my father. 
So Xerxes put some inscription on these four columns that reflects that the gate was built by his own father, Darius. This, I think, is probably what we're talking about, where Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate. So he's in a place where business takes place, where people travel through and are walking through all the time. A little bit like Absalom sitting in the gate and all the Israelites came through and he talked to them in the life of David. And this building, by the way, corresponds with chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, it says that Hathak went out to Mordecai. Hathak is a king's eunuch appointed to Esther. Hathak went out to Mordecai to find out certain things in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. So here is Mordecai and we find him sitting in this building or in this gate in verse 21 and verse 22 as he sits there. He overhears this plot to assassinate or to lay hands on King Ahasuerus by two of his eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, who are even named for us by the author. The Bible says they guard the, ter- the threshold. Now the threshold is probably the access or the entrance to the king's chambers. So you come through the gate into a courtyard and beyond that you might find the royal compound And there's the threshold by which if you enter that threshold, you enter the royal chambers of King Ahasuerus. Perhaps they were the gods who stood outside the door on the threshold to King Ahasuerus, to the private rooms of Ahasuerus. Certainly, it would appear that perhaps Big Than and Teresh have responsible positions in the guarding of the threshold. Because the guarding of the threshold would seem to imply that they have easy access to King Ahasuerus. Certainly if he's passing back and forth, they may have thought they have the opportunity to lay hands on the king. Easy to do, perhaps. Now, it says they were angry with him. We don't know why they were angry with him. Perhaps he said, your wages are cut in half. It's going to be tough from now on. I just lost the war in Greece, and things are bad at home. So wages are half. Perhaps that that happened. I don't know. I can see Ahasuerus doing that. What are you going to say to him? Well, they got angry for whatever the reason was, and they wanted to lay hands. And that phrase, of course, to lay hands is to, to do harm or to kill. That's what it means. And so these two eunuchs desire to kill Ahasuerus. Now, it says that Mordecai came to hear of that. Now, it doesn't say, did he actually overhear the conversation between the two of them? But certainly they were having a conversation and somehow Mordecai has discovered this conversation and what they are planning. So these two responsible eunuchs, these two responsible individuals who are there to guard the king, who have easy access to Ahasuerus, they are making these plans to kill him when Mordecai overhears them. Perhaps actually heard definitely the conversation. Well, look what Mordecai does. If you look at verse 22, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. So obviously Mordecai has access to Esther, right? Now he can remember how before he used to walk up and down trying to find out what was happening to Esther. 
when she was in the first harem. So for 12 months, he's out there, back and forth, back and forth, wanting information on Esther. But now it would appear, since she is the queen, he seems to have access to Esther. So he tells Esther of this planned attempt on the life of Xerxes. And what does Esther do? She tells Ahasuerus. She goes to him and says, look, this is what I've heard. And then she says, it was Mordecai who actually told me. She gives all the credit, verse 22, to Mordecai. And Ahasuerus, he does exactly what, he, what, uh, what any good king who's under threat would do. He investigates, right? And so an investigation in verse 23, when the affair was investigated, the truth was discovered. It's right. And of course, both men are hanged on the gallows. Now, you know, capital punishment in Persia was usually by two means. By hanging on a gallows, which, by the way, Haman is going to erect for Mordecai. Hanging on the gallows or by being impaled, which is an awful way to die. Many suggest that the hanging on the gallows is the first procedure, and then the second procedure is the impaling on a stake so that you would be held up for public shame. There's, this is what these people have done, and so on. And that may be the case, but the text tells us they were both hanged on the gallows. Some side note says suspended on a stake. Now all of those things which are there for you to read, and for me to read, are recorded in the books, right? Uh, so like any event, any investigation, there's a record that is kept and a record that is made. And notice it says, in the presence, at the end of verse 23, in the presence of the king. In fact, it's quite possible, since this was a threat on the life of Ahasuerus, that he maintained a close interest in the case. What's happening? What did these two get up to? What's going on? And so the investigation has taken place, and there's only one sentence for treason, and that is the, the sentence of death, and those details are written down in the presence of Ahasuerus, recorded in the Chronicles. Again, when you read that, what stands out is that Mordecai is forgotten. It's recorded in the book, and we move straight into chapter 3 where we're introduced to Haman, the enemy of God's people. So it would appear Mordecai is overlooked, and nothing happens to him. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that the Persians were very particular in keeping a record of the king's gifts to those who helped him. And so it's quite remarkable here that this list that listed all the benefactors of the king or those who helped the king, that Mordecai is some, for some reason or other overlooked in the passage at all. And so loyalty, of course, it would appear was generously rewarded by Persian kings for services that are rendered. And perhaps Haman the Agagite has achieved his position later on by these kinds of means. He has worked himself up in the ladder of prestige and honor, and he has been given gifts and rewards and so on, and now he finds himself as number one or number two in the kingdom next to Ahasuerus. So loyalty was usually regard generously given by the Persian kings, as history tells us. So Mordecai's lack of reward stands out in the text. Now, I want you to note there's some other things that we should note here in the text, right? For instance, this occasion provides Esther 
with some authority, with some status, because she's the one who tells Ahasuerus, and she does it in the name of Mordecai. Now, you have to be very careful what you tell the king about such a thing, because if it doesn't prove to be so, there could very well be great trouble for your own life. So, of course, she is confident of Mordecai and his knowledge of the affair, and so she... she tells the king, and as a result of this, Ahasuerus, I think, is probably much more inclined to listen to Queen Esther when later on she will reveal the plot of Haman. And he won't just dismiss the plot of Haman. He will listen because he knows that she found out or made record or brought to his attention this very affair. And so Ahasuerus is probably inclined to listen to her about any future possible threats against himself and against the kingdom, against Persia. And that's just an anticipation of Haman, who's going to occupy so much of the book. Not only that, but you'll notice in verse 20 that thrown into this account is the fact of the repetition you find back in verse 10 that Esther had not made known her people or kindred because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And so, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded. Why the repetition? Verse 10, verse 20. Why has she not done this? Perhaps, of course, by not revealing her nationality and not revealing her people, she avoids any possible prejudice that Ahasuerus might have against the Jews at a future late date down the line. And so perhaps Mordecai has some wisdom in this that he, that he says, don't reveal who your people are because it might be that the Jews were not well... Remember, they're exiles. They live in Persia, but they're captives. That's where they came from, from the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And so she is perhaps removing future prejudice against herself and Mordecai and the Jewish people by refraining at this point in time of not making known the fact that she was Jewish. We must also note in the text that Mordecai is in the right place at the right time. Right? Mordecai is in the right place. He happens to be sitting in the king's gate. His turn to take notes, whatever it might have been. But he was in the right place at the right time. While he sits there, national events of significance and important, just importance, just like tomorrow, tonight, in our own country, are happening all the time. And here we are sitting in church. And national events around the world, global events, are taking place of which we are largely completely unaware and ignorant of, but they're happening. So too in Persia. Business as usual, Persian uh, life continues, and Mordecai finds himself sitting in the king's gate at the right time, at the right place, to hear of an attempt to overthrow King Ahasuerus, to lay hands by these two eunuchs. Just a side note, being in the right place and at the right time does not guarantee reward. You may be overlooked. God does not promise us, any of us, fair dealings in the world or by the world. Sometimes I feel in our country that we believe that Christians should receive fair dealing, justice, that, that 
the whole point of us being under the protection of the government is that the government should protect us, that, that the nation should, should care for Christians. It's under no obligation to do so. Under no obligation to do so. Now, it may be in the interests of a nation, any nation, to care for all kinds of people within their borders. But sometimes I feel we Christians expect, demand, fair treatment by the world. I want to disabuse you of that notion completely tonight. Do not look for fair treatment from the world. It won't happen. It's not going to happen, right? God does not promise any of us fair dealings. You know how I know that? Because Jesus never received fair dealing at all. He is accused. He is accused. And he says not a thing. He just goes to the cross. In fact, I have discovered for myself, as I'm sure you have, that the Christian life is largely unfair. That the Christian is usually oftentimes overlooked, forgotten, of no account. Don't go that way with the Christians and so on. In fact, we are not on the world side. And let me assure you, the world is certainly not on the Christian side. In fact, to be a friend with the world, James tells us, is to be an enemy of God. So to make friends with the world, to make friends so that you might receive fair dealing, is to actually make an enemy of God, because God doesn't promise you that. He doesn't promise me that. We may serve in the world, and we ought to serve in this world. We ought to be about our business, but that does not mean that the world supports you. You know that to be true, because just open your mouth and tell the world that you're a Christian and see what happens. You will discover opposition. You will discover that perhaps you do not advance as you thought you might advance, because it is known that you are a Christian. And that's what Mordecai and Esther are going to discover once it becomes known that they are Jewish. Haman is not content to just overthrow Mordecai. He makes a plan to destroy an entire people because he hates them and he hates Mordecai. That's the reason. So, if you focus on fairness and demand fairness, you are not going to get it and you will lose sight, let me tell you, of God. Because in this text, and in all the texts of Esther, even though God is not mentioned, as we know, yet God is everywhere. We know that God is everywhere. The Holy Spirit confirms that to us as we read the book, because He's the author of this book. In fact, we keep ourselves in the love of God, as Jude verse 21 says to us, keep yourself in the love of God, because you're not going to get that love from anywhere else. Certainly not from the world. So keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, maintain a focus on God and maintain a focus on the love that God has for you as you live your life in the midst of this world, in the midst of opposition from the world. Live your life with God. So this entire section, 19 through 23, drives us and directs our attention to what we have referred to so often before as the secret providence of God. That God is doing something behind the scenes. That God is at work. I mean, notice this, for example. Mordecai, as I've already said, is sitting in the right place at the right time. Now, how did that happen? That's the providence of God. Not only that, but Esther has not yet revealed her people, which will, at another time, 
be discovered, and put in motion other events. But she has not done so at this time. Why not? Providence of God. Notice that an assassination attempt is discovered by Mordecai and is uncovered in the report that Esther gives, proven to be true. Why? Because of God working. And not only that, but notice that particularly, as I've said, no reward for Mordecai. Nothing. No thank you, Mordecai. Wonderful service. Here's the Freedom Medal to Persia, to Susa. Nothing. Zero. No mention. Totally uncharacteristic of a Persian king and the Persians. So how do those things happen? How do those little things that the text is implying and suggesting to us, how do they happen? Let me remind you that while they are happening, Satan, the enemy of God and of his people, is always at work. Always at work. And the world, of course, is the playground of Satan himself. He's the one who manipulates. He's the one who deceives. He's the one who destroys. He's the one who lies. And yes, Satan uses and abuses everything for, his, for himself to oppose God and to destroy his people. And yet, he cannot overthrow God. He can do nothing to God. Nothing. We do well, dear congregation, to remember this in our own time. Because the enemy is everywhere at work, and yet he cannot overthrow God. And so sometimes it appears to me that we as Christians are too hung up on what Satan is accomplishing and what Satan does. I'm much more rather interested in, well, what is God doing in your life and my life? Because he's the one who overcomes the evil one, always. In fact, Satan cannot thwart a single purpose of God. Satan cannot change a single intended purpose of God. Satan cannot divert Mordecai from the right place at the right time. Satan certainly may have orchestrated some assassination attempt, and God permits it. It's not Satan that has ultimate control, but God who has ultimate control. And so, let me remind you that life is not fair, and it's so easy to lose sight of that, I think, when you're continually told that you have rights. As a Christian, you have rights. And you ought to exercise those rights, demand those rights, only to discover that Jesus never demanded any rights, and so on. So, because life is not fair, sometimes life hurts us, puts us down. I remind you also that we have never yet ever had to face in our own country a decree issued from the government that outlaws the church. Now that may come. That may come. Who knows? God knows. I'm not worried because God knows. But we have never had to face the outlawing of the church in this country at all by the government. We've never had to face that you just compromise your faith by a decree of the government. No, you enjoy freedom to live under the grace and the providence of God, in the sovereign purposes of God. There are current statistics and figures that around the world there are more than 300,000 Christians who are martyred every year for their faith. That's a lot of people every year for their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's not just Christians who are, who are persecuted but don't die. These are those who die for their faith. More than 300,000 every year, all the time. 
So when you're tempted to think that life is bad for you, life is not bad for you. I'm sorry. In fact, life is very good for us in the providence of God. And should life get very bad for you, it's in the providence of God. And we have to remember that. You remember how the disciples in Acts chapter 4 were persecuted for their defense of Jesus? The council and the rulers warned them and threatened them and beat them and all of these things. And they rejoiced when they left the presence of those people. They were, they were praising God that, that they were actually worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And then it says they held a prayer meeting. They went home, told everybody, and they said they got together and had a prayer meeting. And do you know what they said in that prayer meeting? They acknowledged God's absolute sovereignty over all things even the death of his son. That's what they said in that prayer meeting. And then they said this, Now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants boldness to continue to speak the word. So, God, you take care of the wicked. We give us boldness to carry on and preach the word. It's not quite like how we do it. We don't really think like that. God's absolutely sovereign, even over the death of Jesus. Not only that, but let God take care of the wicked. No, I must take care of the wicked. I must figure out some way, some plan, to, so that I don't suffer in this. No, if God intends for you to suffer, like the disciples, then you suffer for His glory, for His good. The book of Revelation has this remarkable unfolding, doesn't it? This impressive declaration of the rage of the nations against God and His people. Or, to put it this way, the rage of the dragon and the rage of the beast against God and against His people. And yet, the book of Revelation says Jesus rules them with a rod of iron. That Jesus reigns in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over every nation, over all the kings of the earth. Somehow we don't believe that. This is not possible, we say to ourselves. Where is Jesus ruling? Jesus is in heaven, at the right hand of God. That's usually where God rules from, by the way. In heaven. That's where He sends out His, his decrees and does what all that He does. It comes from above, comes from heaven. And yes, Christians die, and many of them die for the Lord particularly. But the Lord, according to the book of Revelation, calls every single saint to a patient enduring, and to the faith of the saints. Don't give up, and don't stop believing. Persevere, persevere to the end. What I like about the book of Esther, ultimately, of course, is there is no enemy to thwart God. None. That means there's no enemy against me to thwart God's purposes for my life. Oh yeah, I may be threatened. Yes, I may suffer many things, that's true, but that's at the hand of God. That's God who's doing that for me, for my good. Oh yes, He may use the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and the dragons and the beasts and whoever it might be, doesn't matter, it's God. That's the lesson of the book of Job, right? It's not Satan who did all these things, who took the life of his children ultimately, it's God who did it. Because God has a purpose for Job. That way... Is not a very easy way, is it, to lose all your children, all of them, in one blow, gone. No, 
There is no enemy to thwart Jesus and there is no enemy to thwart God. It cannot be done. Praise God, it cannot be done. So here's a small historical interlude in chapter 2 of the book of Esther that calls for me to look for God in everything and to see God's hand in all aspects of my life. Even the ups and downs, even the unfair times, the hard times, the suffering times. Even when I'm overlooked, even when I'm unloved, I am not so by Jesus. Praise God for that. I am not so by King Jesus. John Flavel, I think I was mentioning on Wednesday night, uh, he wrote the book, The Mystery of Providence, which is a remarkable book. And I think I mentioned on Wednesday how God, Flavel says that God in His providence has protected all of us, His people, in the womb. And then He has given you a birthplace. You have a, you're born in this city or that city. Uh, I'm born in Harare, Zimbabwe. Far off, small little place, which you probably never gave a thought to. But I was born there in the providence of God. Here I am tonight in the providence of God. I didn't orchestrate any of that. It's God who brought it about. And so, it is God who protects us in the womb. It's God who gives us a birthplace. It's God who gives us a nationality. It's God who gives us parents. And yes, they may be bad parents, but God knows that. And God's saving you out of a bad background, a bad family life, a bad home life, is so that you might start a good family and have a good life under God. Yes, the wicked are all around us, but they're there by God's ordaining decree. And the thing about that is that I discover when I think like that, that God is revealing Himself in His works, and God is revealing Himself to me in His Word. I mean, it's God who puts Joseph in a prison only to put him in the palace, right? It's God who did that to that boy. It's God who gives a barren Hannah a son who becomes the prophet Samuel. It's God who gives a, a son to a barren Sarai, to a barren Rebecca, to a barren Rachel, to a Samson's mother. It's God who did that. Not them, God. In fact, in fact, it would appear that the circumstances surrounding some of them, that it was impossible to have children. Yet God brought it about. It's God who puts a Mordecai in a king's gate at a particular time. And it's God who brings this young woman into the position that He has given to her to be queen of Persia for a particular thing, for His work. How did they get there? How did Mordecai and Esther suddenly arrive in Persia on this occasion? Well, you remember back up in chapter 2 that when the, the, the genealogy is given of Mordecai, you discover that his great-great-grandfather was one of the exiles under Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, what a frightful experience that was. That was God orchestrating the captivity, which was His plan and purpose, and in the captivity orchestrating this man, Kish, and his descendants that become Mordecai in Susa under Persian rule for this occasion. That's God. So even a, a Babylonian captivity is ordained by God, which it was. Now, and doesn't, doesn't God send His own beloved Son to a world that will reject Him? 
He came to his own and they did not receive him. To, to be despised and to be rejected, to be crucified. To be a man that when we look upon him, there was nothing to attract us to him. We despised him and hid from our faces, as it were, from him. No, it's God who sent his son the right time, the right place to save you, to save me. Uh, he can permit a raging Pharisee to abuse the church and then gloriously save him, stop him in his tracks and save, his, save him and change his life. That's what salvation is for each one of us, right? The total saving and change. This is nothing less than God ruling all things, God sustaining all things. This is our God. This is the God we say we believe. We believe that He orchestrates all things and everything is in His care and He is richly gracious to us in the midst of it all. Even an unfair world. How gracious of God to do certain things for us. So I must learn, here it is, I must learn to live in the knowledge of the providence of God. What is God doing when something happens to me? Why does this happen to me? What is God doing? What is God trying to teach me? What is God showing me? So that every day, the small things, the insignificant things that are going to happen to you tomorrow, for whatever reason, are the things that God is using in your life. That calls me to trust God for every aspect of my life. That His sovereign purposes are being worked out for His glory, for my good, for your good. Because that's what they did for Jesus and to Jesus. And what happened to Jesus worked out for our good and for God's glory. And that's what I must learn. And so the book of Esther is just going to unfold these wonderful truths to us. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for this little study in the book of Esther. So many wonderful truths to occupy our hearts and minds. Forgive us, Father, when we are so taken up with, with the troubles of life the problems of life, that we lose sight of you, or that we might open our eyes like Elisha prayed to you for the servant's eyes to be opened to see all the host of heaven arrayed against the enemies of God. So help us, we pray. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for this Lord's Day and the, the privilege of gathering as your people to worship. And thank you for your, your goodness to us and your grace to us, your love for us. We give ourselves to you now, Father, and pray that you would use us this week. Help us in our witnessing, help us in our working, help us in our walking. In all of these aspects of our lives, help us to please you and to bring glory to your holy name. So we thank you for our time. We commit ourselves to you now. Go before us and direct our paths. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.